1: John Cohenhaver and Al Warren Bird <laughs> on FM Los Angeles 102.3 FM Riverside
2: and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren. I was going to say it must be Tuesday because it's Michael Hawley day, but it's uh. <laughs> Wednesday, week Wednesday with Hallway.
1: I'm a Wednesday transfer now, Al.
2: Yeah, I don't know if Wednesday's (laughs) going to like it. Wednesday people might not be happy.
1: Well, it's hump day, and, they, you know, people, you know, you know, camels have a bad time and stuff like that, so we'll see how it
2: works. <laughs> well, if they're thinking hump day and they're looking at you.
1: Hey, is... <laughs> I'm Silver Fox, that's all I can say.
2: Silver Fox, <laughs> 88, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So you're all ready for the big holiday seasons? Another week oh. and we're shut down here, so what do you? what's the big, nothing, just staying home, eating a lot of food, drinking a lot of beer, right? Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely, fine lagers as I call them. Yeah. So there's so a lot ex- to taste. <laughs> extra
2: large shirts packed away for after.
1: <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Spandex, everything.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's an ugly sight. Boy, that, that's not pretty. Anyway. Well, now we've got a an author here, kind of a crime mystery, but we're going to bring in Alzheimer's, it looks like. So uh, the book is called Face of Greed. Detective Emily Hunter Mystery, and the writers with us today is James Latoile. Thank you for being here.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Al. Appreciate
2: it. So, uh, James, now, I, I just noticed, like, you have quite the history. Like, you're not just like a lifelong writer that's been doing that your whole life. You've got, you know, history in, in working in, in I guess, what is it? Hostage nego- negotiator and uh, yeah. associate warden and all of this, uh, yeah. criminal activity, not you doing it but <laughs> in that business. so I, to speak. I do appreciate the clarification. Um, <laughs>
0: but yeah, I do have,
2: uh, But why, why the change then? Or what happened? How was that transition for you going from, you know, working as a hostage negotiator, let's say, or working in that business and then getting into writing?
0: Yeah, I mean, I worked in uh, in the prison system, prison parole and, and probation here in California for you know 29 years, and when I retired, I I hadn't intended on becoming a writer and, and venturing off into that field. And I was, you know, I'd been retired for maybe six months, and I was sitting in the backyard with, with my coffee and a book, and I was reading the book, and it was like it wasn't very good, and I just kind of tossed it aside, and and kind of to myself, I said, Well, hell, I can do better than this. You know, and, and that kind of a that, that kind of a challenge was there is like, well, well, can you can you really? So I I started learning about, you know, the craft of writing fiction and commercial fiction and, and uh, that kind of thing and attended the the, the craft classes where, you, you know, learn about pacing and dialogue and story structure. Things were completely foreign to me working in prison. And, you know, I attended the book passage uh, mystery writers conference several times up in Marin County. And listen to people like, you know, Craze and Conley and Don Winslow come in and talk about, you know, how they what their path was to publication. And and it was like, okay maybe maybe I can do this. And so that's how I kind of started into it. But I didn't have the confidence, I felt, to write commercial fiction, even though I knew the mechanics of it. So I started thinking back on one of the first jobs I had uh, as a probation officer. I was writing pre-sentence reports. So I'd go to the jail and interview the defendants up in the jail and get their version of the offense. I'd talk to the detectives, read all the reports, meet with the victims and understand the impact of the crime on them. And I'd write this narrative of the crime uh, for the sentencing judge so they could, you know, look at it and send Johnny off to prison for you know, so many years. And it didn't really strike me until after I was retired that I'd been writing crime stories all along. So with that confidence boost, it kind of set me kind of set me loose into this
2: world. You know, um, but the important question here is really, what book were you reading <laughs> that you threw aside? That's really Come on. Give us a name. Here. Yeah, I did
1: say Warren did it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it um, it's a,
0: I'm not going to drop the name, but it's it's a very well-known author. <laughs> and I've had a chance to meet them at, at conferences, you know, uh, over the last couple of years. And I thank them for their inspiration on in getting me started. And I left it at that.
2: Thank them for I'm the good nice. writing. <laughs> <laughs> but what gave you the confidence to actually publish? You know, because you know the mechanics, and you realize that you can do right. a, a lot of it, and you have all this stuff. But there's still a usually something that will push someone over that gives you confidence to kind of go, "Yeah, I'm going to put this out."
0: Yeah, there. Yeah, I think you know, working in prison for as long as I did, people expect me to write prison books, and and I really don't. I uh, write crime fiction, you know, thrillers and, and procedurals. Um, but what stuck with me o- over that period of time were the characters that I kind of ran into over that decades-long uh, experience and some of the situations. And some of them were just so vivid that um, they just had to be included in a story somewhere, pieces of it, or inspired uh, sections of the stories. And that's kind of where everything came together was there was this – this character or this situation that I remembered when I was working, um, that there, there was really a story to tell there. And, uh, a lot of what I write is influenced by that kind of, uh, that kind of a background.
2: So when you sit down to write a book, like, like for instance, the new book, you know, Face of Greed, um, do you come up with the story first or do you have the character developed and then you put them into that situation? Um,
0: yeah, I'm, I'm a character guy. I really want to know who I'm going to be. Uh, talking about and talking with for the, for the next few months, I'll, I'll do a lot of character work to kind of describe who this character is, what they're about, you know, what their, what their fears and phobias are, what their, you know, what their daily life looks like, uh, before I ever start to get into the story. And in, in this particular instance, uh, Emily, Emily Hunter, uh, came together. Uh, she was just kind of a fascinating character to write about. She's, she's fun to write. She's a little bit irreverent. A little snarky, a little sarcastic, kind of pushes the boundaries here and there. Um, but she's, she's really kind of a fun, uh, a fun character to, to turn loose on the story. And the story itself in Face of Greed, the, the opening of it was influenced by one of the first murder cases that I worked on. And, uh, it was a, a gang, uh, home invasion, uh, up here in, uh, in El Dorado County. And they held a, a family hostage and the, the husband was a real estate broker. So they assumed he'd have piles of cash sitting around the house. Well, he didn't. Uh, so they couldn't give him what, uh, what, uh, they wanted. So they ended up, uh, shooting him and killing him, uh, in front of his family. Um, but as, as gang, yeah, yeah, as gang members do, they turned on each other pretty quickly. Um, when the, when the net started to c- close around them, uh, to see who could get the best deal, uh, they tried spinning a yarn that, uh, you know, the, the homeowner was actually a drug dealer that owed them money and, you know, they were just collecting their drug debt as if that made the murder justified. Um, but nobody believed that story. Um, you know, we didn't believe it. The jury certainly didn't believe it. We got three convictions and one death penalty on the on the, on the case. Um, but, yeah, that, that kind of stuck in my mind, that, that whole situation. So that when I went to write Face of Greed, I kind of put myself in the position of asking, you know, what if there was more going on in that house than we were led to believe? And what if there was something really more in depth going on with that victim than we knew? And that's kind of how face of greed starts out that Emily's faced with that. And right away she realizes there's, there's more going on here than what it appears.
2: Nice. I always wonder, you know, when, when, um, whenever talking, I do a lot of true, true crime, a lot of, a lot of, uh, murder, serial killer stuff. And, uh, met a lot of cops, detectives, and and prisoners, and all sorts of stuff. But I always want to know from, from a cop or someone like you, with all that history, um, is it hard for you to look at people from a positive side rather than a negative when you deal with, let's say, 30 years of your life of just trying to correct people that have done wrong? Do you know what I'm saying? I, I do
0: know what you're saying. And I think when you're in it, when I was actively working in it, um, there were there were perception issues. Sure, I, I wouldn't say I was looking at people negatively, but I think you're always look, looking at what are they up to, what do they want, what's their motivation. You know, um, even if you're in the yeah, even if you're in the in the grocery store and they're sorting through, you know, apples, you start to question, well, why didn't they pick that apple? You know, kind of thing, but. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you start to compartmentalize your life a little bit and, you know, you, you do kind of second guess everything that's going on. But I've had enough distance from that now that I don't do as much of that um, in this life as, a, as an author as I did when I was still, you know, working in prison.
2: I'll just be careful not to go to grocery stores. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Grab the first apple. Yeah, yeah, just, I'm not searching. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I guess, it, can you capture that somehow and put that into your story then? Like that, just that overall feeling of, um, it, in a way, it's a, it's a perception, right? Like it's, uh, when you're standing in the store and someone's going through the apples. You're, you're, you're watching and you're trying to put together logic reasons and you're really trying to understand that person. So can, are you able to easily take that and transfer that into your book?
0: You, you can, uh, not so much in, in the apples comparison, but I mean, you know, somebody like Emily, uh, Hunter, when she's dealing with, uh, you know, a gang member. Uh, in the investigation, she's already thinking ahead on what his what his answers are going to be because this guy's you know been at Pelican Bay you know he's seen he's seen what the the other side is like. Uh, he's trying to stay out of prison, so she's kind of basically playing mental chess with him, staying a couple of moves ahead because she knows where uh where he's trying to get uh, get out and, uh, and and avoid you know being pinned for this for this murder. Yeah, it it feeds in I think a lot into into what I write because that. That whole world of prison and even on, on parole in the community and that law enforcement umbrella, it's a different world. I try to kind of peel it back a little bit and let people see what really happens in that, in that environment. Some people don't want to know and that's, that's cool, but it really is a different world, different rules, different rules, different culture, you know, as a sociological kind of experiment. It's, it's really kind of fascinating to watch.
2: Oh, I'd imagine, you know, so how did you create? you're you're emily hunter like how is that for you and also because a lot of people are going to question okay first of all you're a man and you write a woman lead and and how right. is it to write in that position but the other thing is also what is your relationship with her like how do you how do you do you hear her see her do you feel her do you is it maybe describe your process there
0: writing uh, a female character as a male author I don't take that lightly. I've done it before in in other novels, but um, it's something that I don't take lightly. I can't just write, you know, a male character and throw her in a skirt and call it, you know, uh, Emily Emily Hunter. It, it it's much more nuanced than that. I mean, she's got a different way of approaching it, and I liked building this as a as a female detective in this very high pressure situation because as a as a woman in law enforcement. She's had to face obstacles that I didn't have. I didn't have to have. You know, I saw it happening to other women that I worked with. But in many instances, the the female cops that I worked with had to work twice as hard just to get the same recognition as their male counterparts. And some of the, the female cops in prison, the, the correctional officers I worked with in prison, were great at de-escalating situations where a guy would go immediately into that that confrontational mode. Some of these women were great at just de-escalation and talking them down and, you know, avoiding a larger incident. So I, I kind of put a lot of that into Emily. You know, I wanted her to have that additional barrier, additional obstacle to kind of bump up against during the story. And, and it does, you know, in, on occasion in the story that, you know, because, because she's a woman, other officers don't see her as an equal, you know, that kind of thing. And it, uh, her reaction to that, I think, is kind of uh, is kind of where some of the story really is.
1: So, James, the beta readers. I will. I will use my wife uh, if I have a female character, especially with this one. Yeah, exactly, Michael. That's that's almost exactly what
0: I did. Uh, yeah, my wife is is one of my first readers. I have a group of beta readers. More than half of them were or are female cops in law enforcement, so they're looking at that aspect of it. My agent's a woman. My editor's a woman, and yet none of these people are shy about telling me if I. Miss, miss the mark. You know that you know a woman's not going to say that, or a female cop isn't going to do that because it's going to reflect. You know, in this kind of a light. Uh, so yeah, I do rely on that kind of feedback, and it's helped me kind of keep Emily, you know, believable and on the rails. Gotcha.
2: Well, you know, Mike just he get his wife kicks him, kicks kicks <laughs> ass, ass. If, if <laughs> you know,
1: that's no kidding. She was a nationally rated judo player, tough yeah. lady. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Yeah,
2: yeah. There's a, that's a whole other situation there that's a whole show in itself, right so.
1: yes, dear, and yeah, it's just you got to use that
2: yeah, a lot <laughs> a lot now you've also tied in alzheimer's, you know with yeah. with i believe what it's emily's um, mother on that is there is there a reason for that, and how how does that tie into the story? How did you fit that in
0: yeah I, it was it was that one more complication that I wanted to bring into to emily's life um you know, here she is in the middle of this this very high stakes, politically driven investigation, and at the same time, she's balancing being a caregiver for her mom, who's suffering from early onset Alzheimer's. So, you know, I mean, right at the beginning of the book, that's kind of where we're led into: is she's got, you know, she's worried about mom and, and sundowner syndrome, and she's wandering off from the from the house. So she's dealing with caregivers, and where can mom go, and that and that kind of thing, and it it's really tearing her, you know, emotionally, you know, that's your mom, you're supposed to take care of her and all this kind of thing. And then she's got to try to balance her life with the investigation side. So it it really adds a little bit to it and uh, some of the readers have really kind of honed in on that that kind of subplot and made some connections with it because I mean, you know, we're all dealing with aging parents at one point or another and it seems to be more and more common that we're dealing with dementia and um, and Alzheimer's issues. And I kind of wanted to throw some of those themes in there. You know, I, I, experienced it with my mom. Yeah. It's, it's a tough kind of a thing to, to deal with. And, uh, I think Emily struggles to find that balance.
2: Did you do a lot of research outside of your own experience to kind of capture that?
0: Yeah. I did, I did a, a little bit of research and also, you know, we went through it with, with my mom and, and her, and her dementia. But one of the things that we've been doing is my wife and I, we have therapy docs. And we take them to one of the local memory care facilities, and you you get to meet with the you know the, the residents, and they get to love on a dog for a little bit and just de- decompress. But in memory care, you know they're sitting up on the couch waiting for you, and you pet the dog, you walk the dog behind the couch, comes out on the other side, and it's oh look a brand new dog. You know that that short term memory is is all gone, and it's a brand new dog to them. But what the staff would tell us is you know these people can't remember what they had for lunch. You know, they don't remember yesterday, but they'll talk about the visiting with the dogs for days afterwards. And it's like, there was some emotional connection that they made to their youth and having a, a dog or a pet of their own. And it kind of made some connection there um, that these people remembered. And it, it really, it gives them a sense of calm and a little bit of peace. And uh, it's, it's kind of nice for us to, to be able to do that, that emotional connection. Yeah, yeah for sure, yeah.
2: exactly. It's amazing, you know, what these pets, you know, animals. And I've been rescuing um, uh, old dogs mm-hmm. from the pound for yeah. 25 years. because I've got three acres, and I get – like I've got a 19-year-old Jack Russell right now. I've got, oh, wow. I get a lot of dogs. and But it's amazing how uh, you can connect as a human to, to an animal without saying a word. Yep. Do you know what I mean? I like do, there's something. Too going yeah. on and and it's amazing i just i can't say enough good about it and that's something i'll do until i can't yeah
0: we've we've seen uh we've seen that same kind of a thing we, we do a lot of um therapy dog work at uh you know assisted living and memory care hospice uh but we do reading programs for the kids and we'll go to a local bookstore or a library bring the dogs in kids grab a book off the shelf and they sit down and you know read to the dog the dogs are great with kids on the autistic spectrum uh, they kind of sense the energy and they just kind of match it. So if if the kid is wound up, the dog goes in real quiet and calm, and um, all of a sudden you start to see this this kid calm down and the tension lessens. And you know they're reading to the dog, and it's uh, it's not something that you train into the dog. It's just they have this innate sense that they want to help this this person out. They want to calm them down or get them you know into a right frame of mind, and they just you know go do it.
2: Yeah, certainly worked for me my whole life. But, um, yeah, enough about me. <laughs> <laughs> so now, in a story like this, when you put this together, um, even if it's organic, the way it ends up, is there a subtext? Is there a meaning? Is there something you want the reader to get besides the entertainment of the story itself?
0: Yeah, I think there's always kind of some message, you know, buried deep, maybe sometimes too deep, buried buried in the in the in the story. You know, in, in face of greed, we're dealing with, you know, the city's political eat that the political elite that, you know, nothing, they can't have enough. They, they're always striving to get to have more. And at some point, you know, what that does to other people in their, in their environment, you know, that's the kind of thing that that, that greed, that unchecked, unchecked greed is, is kind of poisonous. And I think that's one of the things that comes out in this, in this story is that. You know, this this dead man in the beginning of the book had so much going on in his life and he was blackmailing federal prosecutors and that kind of stuff. And it starts to come out and people start to scramble to control, the, to control the rest of his secrets that he that he maintained.
2: And now are you planning on doing a series with this detective?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a series. Uh, the editor uh, at Ocean View has number two. Uh, it's called River of Lies. Uh, River of Lies also, it's again in Sacramento, and it uh, involves someone burning down the homeless camps along the rivers in Sacramento, along the Sacramento and American Rivers, burning the camps and chasing the homeless out. Uh, Sacramento has a huge homeless issue of purism, as as I'm sure you know. But what Emily discovers is um, even the homeless have something that somebody wants, and they're willing to kill to get it. So she's going to un- uncover what that is and she finds a very unlikely victim and a very unusual suspect as she opens up the case.
1: How curious that uh, there's a killer killing uh, some homeless people right now.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's been happening up here in Northern California, kind of on, it's not unusual anymore. We had the guy in Stockton who was chasing the serial killer, the serial killer there that killed, I think, four uh, homeless people. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of attacks on uh, the homeless population in, uh, in our region up here.
2: Do you think that's more it, – it, it, sometimes, like you were talking about, there's something that criminal wants from the victim, uh, even if they're homeless. But do you think a lot of it's just opportunity in the sense of you can kill someone that's homeless and without a lot of money or family or people around them that they won't be missed or the system doesn't care for them?
0: I th- I think that's probably part of it. I mean, if you look at our history of serial killers up here in in Northern California, a lot of it was driven on you know marginalized populations that you know that the victim wouldn't be missed or didn't have ties that would have somebody you know really really looking for them. A lot of sex workers ended up uh, victims uh, up here, and the homeless um, in Sacramento they're kind of they're they're visible but they're very invisible in terms of people don't want to see it. They don't want to look too deeply into what's going on there. So I think it, it creates a situation where, you know, someone can prey on that population and not get tagged uh, early on as, as the one who's behind the attacks.
1: Uh, James, you talk about the uh, black market organ transplant. Is there a connection between that and some of these uh, sex workers or uh, homeless people?
0: The black uh, market organ transplant, that was from an earlier book, um, At What Cost?, and, uh, yeah, the the underpinnings of that book are kind of interesting. I, when I was working in the security housing unit, and the security housing unit is a prison within a prison. So if you killed somebody in the general population, you came to my unit. So we had an entire unit of these people that, you know, had <laughs> killed somebody were never getting out of prison. They were serving life plus. And so it was that kind of a, you know, a group of, you know, good citizens that we had. So there was a uh, exercise yard going on two Aryan Brotherhood members started stabbing another another inmate, and we shot the guy with the knife, uh, the Aryan Brotherhood member with the knife, ended up killing him to stop the assault. And not long after they, we carted him off, uh, we got a call from the uh, hospital saying they were going to donate his organs. And we were kind of looking at each other like you know, we knew this guy. We searched his cell. He's a filthy Nazi, you know, just disgusting guy. Who would want those organs, you know, kind of thing. A couple of weeks later, one of the officers, uh, sons needed uh, a bone marrow transplant. So we all got on the registry, did our, did our thing, but something about those two together kind of clicked with me. And it's if I had a, a kid who really needed an organ, would I care where they came from? Probably not. So in at what cost my detective is searching for a serial killer who's harvesting these victims organs. The detective's son needs a kidney transplant. So does he make a deal with the killer to get the kidney that his son needs to survive, or does he bring the killer to justice? And that's kind of the moral question that goes on there.
2: When you deal with writing, and it, like, for instance, at the end of this book, so when you finished it, you get it into the publisher, and it's all set, and it's going to come out, and you look back, how do you think that's changed you?
0: It's, it's been kind of a, an interesting experience, this, this second career, really, because it's so different than, than what I experienced, uh, you know, in prison. The community of crime writers, crime fiction authors, um, I didn't, couldn't have imagined how open, friendly and supportive they are. Uh, there's not really a competition among the, the authors. It's, you know, everybody wants to see each other succeed. We're all, you know, we're cheerleaders for everybody in prison. I was used to getting stabbed in the back, literally, but out, out here with, with, uh, crime fiction, I mean, it's just a great environment and that's probably the biggest surprise that, that I've run across since I started down this path.
2: Yeah. Well, the water's warm. Come on in. There's plenty of room, right? <laughs> yeah. And it, it, cause really there's, there's no sense in competition and that's because there's plenty of room for it. I mean, it's kind of overkill yeah. nowadays with self publishing, but, um, I, I think people like good writing and, um, yeah, it's, do. yeah, and I think yeah. networking is a strong thing. You learn a lot from each other and you build each other, and it's kind of a, it's the best thing about, uh, the writing and author community, as far as I see anyway.
0: Yeah, I think you're, you're really onto something now because, I mean, we do this creative thing all by ourselves in our little, in our little caves or wherever we, you know, do the writing, and we don't get a lot of that networking until we get out of that, and go, meet each other at BoucherCon Connor Thriller Fest or you know Left Coast Crime or something and then that's where the real fun is you're able to connect with your your author pals and just you know commiserate with one another and celebrate your successes and um it, it means a lot in that, that connection that uh, we make at these uh, events
2: yeah well not only that i think in our sense you can kind of understand each other for what we do do you know what i mean like the writing. Oh, yeah. You know, you kinda of understand what it is and you don't like have to, minds. Yeah, you don't have to say it. You can just yeah. sort of feel yeah. it, pick it up, you know, stuff. So. so are you are, are you the guy that can sit down Monday to Friday at nine o'clock in the morning and start writing till five and or do you have to be in a certain mood or a certain atmosphere?
0: No, I am a I'm a daily kind of guy. I, I I'm up early, um, mostly because those those therapy dogs we talked about. They, they like to get up early. So, yeah, uh, they, get me up by, they get me up by 5, so by 6 o'clock I'm tucked behind the computer, and I probably plug away for four hours. Uh, after four hours, my creativity kind of starts to get a little muddy, so then I'll move on to other things. Fine loggers work after yeah. four hours. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you can know, tell Mike writes. He just uh... – <laughs> another beer, another chapter, right? You know, nothing so, wrong
1: with that. Yep.
2: no crazy craziness, and and um, so do you? Do you see the you know when you're kind of getting into the uh, dialogue that you write with your characters? Are you seeing the uh, the characters, or can you hear them? Does it play like a movie to you, or uh, do you, what kind of experience do you have?
0: It it does seem like it's very visual to me, um, and I know some authors, you know, can't or don't do that for, for whatever reason. But yeah, when I'm writing a a scene with the characters, it's almost, almost cinematic. Like you said, Al, it, you know, I can kind of see it, hear it and experience what they're, what they're saying and doing. And it helps me kind of keep it a little bit more vivid and, you know, some, it keeps the kind of the scene moving on. So I don't, you know, just drag off into some long retrospective nasal, navel gazing kind of, kind of thing.
2: Oh, well, as long as it doesn't happen to you when you're driving or anything, right? You know, are <laughs> you, start, you know, not hearing voices yeah. or waking up with a shovel beside your bed or anything like that? <laughs> yeah, know.
0: nothing like that. Nothing Social. like that.
2: Well, when that happens, then you know it's time. It's, it's time for <laughs> yeah. some help here, you know. But, um, and, and so you're going to continue this. You've got book two in. Did you, do you kind of, um, know what you're going to do with your, your character? Like, do you know what? Emily Hunter is going to do in the in the book as you write it. You kind of have that outline, uh, beginning, middle, and end. I, I am yeah, I am an I am an
0: outliner. Um, I'm not a pantser. God bless the people that can do that. I need more of a roadmap of where I'm going. Um, and especially with a series, I want to know where Emily's character is going to go over that over that series of two, three, four, or whatever however many books. With Face of Greed, I wrote the wrote the book. Um, and I was about two thirds of the way through when I realized this wasn't going to be a standalone because uh, I didn't write start out writing it as a series. I wrote it as the story. And about two thirds of the way through, I realized there's more I want to know about Emily. Uh, there's more we can discover with her. There's more we can push on the relationship with a an, a guy cop that she's befriended uh, and, the, and the interaction between her her partner, Javier uh, Medina. There's much more there we could uh, we could play with, and I think that's going to fuel uh, a couple more books.
2: All right. So you're an outliner. Do you keep kind of a, a series bible, and when you're doing a series, where you kind of keep track of things, eye color, all that sort of stuff?
0: Yeah, yeah, I I, I do I, I I do that. Um, a lot of it is in uh, either in notebooks that I keep uh, by my desk, or I've found Scrivener is a, is a good tool to help me keep some of that stuff organized on recurring characters that appear in multiple books. You can just peel back on that and, you know, it's all, it's all collected there for you in, in Scrivener.
2: So your, your accessory characters, where do you get them? Just people you've come across or um, people you've seen or at a coffee shop or maybe you've experienced in life?
0: Yeah, they're kind of a, a an amalgam of, of people. Um, I, I don't think that either Javier, her partner, or um, Brian Connor, kind of her, her love interest, a little bit. I don't think that I could point to any one person that, that I've run across that, that influenced them. I think it's kind of a combination of different events and different people, and it's just what that scene or what that character needed that, uh, that I wanted to pull together for Emily to play with.
2: Well, have you have you ever killed off someone you know in in a book? <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, good question. Yeah, I have a couple of practice novels that are sitting in my, my bottom drawer. And yeah, the first one, you know, after I retired and did all that was very therapeutic. Uh, got rid of some people that, uh, <laughs> you know, I felt, uh, felt did me wrong. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're moldering away in the <laughs> so bottom. So a drawer. question
1: about Emily. It sounds like Emily would fit well in a screenplay. Is that possibly in the future?
0: I'd, I'd like to see it. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd see her as, as kind of a, you know how uh, Angie Harmon was in in Rizzoli and Isles. I kind of see her a little bit like that. Um, but yeah, I think she'd be fun on the screen.
2: Well, maybe maybe Mike can play her
1: And <laughs> <laughs> drag. So yeah. that's a different, completely different story. <laughs> that's a different series. <laughs> and,
2: and bad guys. Now, do you do you have any issues writing a bad guy? Is there or do, do you kind of have no no problem getting into the head of a bad guy and uh, do you have to kind of describe, because you kind of have to kind of give away who they are in order for the reader to understand why they're bad.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, yeah, I like, I write, like writing the bad guys, the antagonists in the book, um, because they're all, they're all influenced from, you know, people that, um, that I met. And, and some of the experience I had in prison was able to sit down and just talk with murderers and gangmen and gang members and, you know, Gang hitman, you know, Angela Bono, the Hillside Strangler, was my tear tender for a number of years. So we just sat and chatted. Wow. And, you know, you start to see a different side of people when you're locked up with them, you know, you're, you're doing time with them, but when you're locked up with them, um, you see a different side of them than, you know, the cops saw or the news media saw. Um, So it kind of gives you a little bit of insight into how they, how they tick. And I think that's been helpful to let me translate that onto the page
2: yeah because anything that i've learned one thing is that um a lot of these people that are in prison for these really heinous crimes um because even if i go to interview them as as the journalist or the writer it's almost like a give-take thing There's, they, they want something it's just it's a show in a way right um being in there with them like you were i think that would be a a great insight
0: Yeah, because some of those barriers that you were talking about, that give and take, a lot of those drop off because they realize in the day-to-day interactions with, you know, officers and me and that kind of stuff, there wasn't anything in it for them. So they didn't have to have that false front. There's that psychological, you know, um, kind of a scheme that's called cubing. And, you know, the serial killers will have their cube and one face is, you know, the serial killer. The other face might be a parent. The other face might be an employee. And another side might be, you know, the church pastor. And depending on where you're looking at this person from, you know, that's the side of the cube you see. Um, and it, there's a lot of that that, that really rings true. And, and it's helpful to think about that when you're creating a character, because what is it that that character wants, you know, your are protagonist like Emily to see and deal with.
2: You know, it's in, it's interesting, the whole process, the whole lifespan of all, you know, yeah. this whole crime. The good thing about writing fiction, but your side of it is, in a way, you get to have justice. Do you know what I mean? Because yep. when you're in the true crime side, like even Michael writes true crime, when we write true stories, we don't really get to choose how it happens, how it ends. And yep. sometimes, it's quite often, it's not pretty. And exactly. it's not a good thing. And, you know, and yet, you can kind of do that a little bit in fiction, right? Can
0: do that a lot of bit. Uh, Paul Holes and I had this same conversation a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, He was the Contra Costa investigator with the Golden State Killer. And you know, true crime Is different than real crime and that's different than crime fiction. And yeah, in crime fiction, yeah, I get to see justice done and cases are closed that, you know, we saw cases linger for years and, or just never closed. And in my world in crime fiction, yeah, we can, we can tie that up and, you know, bring, bring justice to that, to that, uh, fictional victim.
2: Paul's a nice guy, interesting guy. That's for sure. Very
0: interesting guy. Yeah. Um,
2: Violence, violence on the page. Are you conscious about how you're going to write the crime or the scene or the action, so to speak, or do you just let it go and be raw?
0: I'm, I'm kind of a mid, mid-range there, I think. I, I, don't, I don't let it go and it's not raw. Most of the violence, the actual violence, appears off the page. You know, like my detectives will show up at the murder scene and, you know, the guy has already been murdered. We don't have to walk through, you know, exactly what happened in the defendant or the, uh, you know, the... Uh, the bad guy, what, what they did, you're left with the aftermath of that, the after effects of, it. and that can be still pretty brutal. Yeah. I, I don't have a lot of the active violence on the page. A lot of it is off. Part of it is readers are smart and their imaginations will take, take you exactly where they, where, where you want them to be.
2: Right. It's more terrifying. Sometimes they offer Hitchcock thought, you know, yeah. about- Letting letting the mind run away with what what could be happening in that room, you know, That's kind right of thing. Right. Yeah, you know, it's 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 really it's, it's an interesting process. So, what do you got coming up? I see. Now you're going to be doing Left Coast Crime in Seattle. Yeah, I'll be at Left Coast
0: Crime. I'll be up there. I'll be at uh, the Tucson Festival of Books in March. Right onto that into um, a Thriller Fest in uh, late May.
2: Wow. You're getting, you're making the rounds.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, yeah. bi- it's a busy, it's a busy time, but it's, it's fun. You know, it's, it is a lot
2: of fun. Yeah. I'll be at Left Coast Scribe, of course, because it's, CO. oh, we're also doing, we're doing a series of noir at the bar for the radio, um, 12 shows starting in late January for KK and W there. So yeah. So I'll be part of that as well, okay. you know, um, well, fantastic. So now the books out there, do you have, um, Social media, website, where do you like readers to find you?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, folks can connect on social media, um, Facebook at com or author James Uh Twitter is just uh, at James Um Instagram is uh, authorjameslittwell. And my website is uh, jamesletwell dot com. That's l e t uh,
2: o i l e dot com. We'll have all that up in our website too, so people can find it. And thanks. You doing? You're not doing TikTok yet? You're not on there dancing? You should bring the dogs on there. Yeah, the,
0: the <laughs> dogs would be fine. yet Nobody wants to see me dance. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> uh,
2: well, you know, you gotta, you gotta get it, give it a try. You never know what's gonna happen. <laughs> well, you know, and. Listen, you must have been writing some over the COVID and the pandemic and the lockdown stuff. Yeah. Do, do you think that affected your writing in any way and make it darker? You think? Um, I don't
0: know if it made it darker or not. I think it gave me a kind of a place to escape. You know, for I think like a lot of people I know that for the first four months or so it was kind of this surreal place, and so I didn't get a lot of writing done. Everybody was just kind of figuring, you know, what what's going on. we, we were at Left Coast Crime in San Diego. Uh, when they shut, when they shut it down for the, uh, uh, for COVID and we were there for like a half a day and we're looking around, the governor's announcement came out, they shut it down and we're kind of looking at each other like, are we ever going to see each other again? You know, kind of thing. And uh, so it was kind of surreal, but, uh, it helped me that isolation just kind of helped me just kind of focus on the work. Uh, it was a diversion for sure, but, um, I don't think it made it any darker, because I I was already pretty much in the shadows anyway, but um, you're already dark. Thinking. Yeah, <laughs> it's dark. dark.
2: Yeah, I always wonder, you know, when I talked to Peter Vronsky, Doctor Vronsky, he does a lot of books on murder and stuff. He talks about different eras and how things affect people, the kids at the time, and and he was talking about that, about how what, what do you think the kids of this time are going to grow up with what, what's going to be a remnant that, that they take with them when they yeah. become 20, 20 years from now. And that yeah. made me I think, I wonder if 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 it kind of makes us, because when you're standing there at the book show and kind of going, well, I wonder if I'll ever see this person again. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that that somehow gets into your writing and you don't realize it.
0: Yeah, it might. Um, but at least consciously, I, I didn't see it or I didn't put it in there uh, intentionally.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I know, yeah, I know how that yeah. is, but, well, it's been great having you on the show, and uh, oh, thanks, we'll so. see you in Seattle, of course, and uh, now the book is called Face of Greed, and it's a detective, Emily Hunter Mystery, and the writer has been our guest, James Latoile. thank you for being here.
0: Thank you, Al, thank you, Michael, take care.
1: Great, great speaking with you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.